Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about teaching teens with T and A. Well, more or less. We've just recently come to the conclusion of Banned Books Week, which I believe is a worldwide celebration. I know that it's an American celebration because I remember having a pin from all the way back in the time that I was in college that said, I read banned books. You know, a little pin about the size of a quarter that you might stick on a collar, stick on a backpack, that sort of thing. And I had one of those. And, and fairly recently, I was wearing that because of perhaps last year's Banned Books Week or two years ago. And my pastor saw it. He was like, I'm not sure I understand what you're communicating here with your pen. And what I was communicating was that I believe that it is very important that we have this open marketplace of ideas. And unfortunately, this year, if you had to pick one book that might be the poster child for Banned Books Week, it might be the Quran. That's certainly not something as a Christian that I feel proud of. I think it's probably an issue. But the Bible is also a book that always pops up in Banned Books Week along with, ironically, Fahrenheit 451, or perhaps Celsius 219, somewhere in that ballpark. Today, though, I want to talk about Banned Books Week, the one that has just passed us, with respect to the question of teaching and schools. There's been a fair amount of controversy in the United States of America about the, the information in our textbooks, what gets in there, whether it's politically driven, whether it's okay for it to be politically driven, whether there's a a balancing act that goes on with the amount of political influence and the ebb and flow of time. I'm not going to talk about that. What I'm going to talk about instead is whether or not it's even appropriate for parents, especially parents of kids in their teens to late teens, to get worked up over the uh, types of books that are on book lists. You still consistently see protests about things like To Kill a Mockingbird, for example. And I'm relatively certain that in this particular culture and in this particular climate, Books that I read when I was in the junior and senior years of high school, books like uh, Siddhartha or The Stranger, would be just as controversial today. So I want to talk a little bit about how it is that we engage the minds of teenagers and whether or not using sex and violence to teach teenagers, especially teach them things like grammar, doesn't make a little bit of sense if the traditional teaching techniques aren't working. We all understand the powerful allure of sex and violence. Modern art is literally saturated in it, and I'm not just talking about films. Advertising employs them as tools, and much more deftly than we tend to recognize. I'm not going to go so far as to say subliminally, but let's be honest. Advertising is very adept at manipulating us with sex and with violence. How odd is it that we do not use these powerful, even primal forces in the interest of good? It's almost as if the suggestion that the powerful primal forces of sex and violence should be used for good is somehow in and of itself bad. Well, the bottom line is, you're not going to be able to keep this information away from your kids. But maybe, if this information captures their attention, it can be leveraged. I'm not making an argument in favor of an X-rated classroom, so don't get me wrong. But I also think that we're a little bit tilted too far in the other direction. Most talk about sex and violence revolves around suppression. How do we control it? How can we protect children? 
where are the lines being drawn between you know these things and our community standards? I'm not suggesting that there's anything wrong with these types of questions, but they aren't the only questions. You want to get the attention of a 15 or 16-year-old boy who is struggling to learn in school? Maybe you should speak in a language that will get through. Now again, I don't think that every grammar textbook from middle schools should be reissued with a focus on the parts of sex organs as much or more than the parts of speech, with story problems that employ not only multiplication and division, but also reproduction and mortal combat. I'm not saying that. I'm only saying that people learn more when they are having fun. I could be wrong, but the same kid who could never diagram a sentence about a woman's purse and shoes to save his life will probably quickly assimilate any learning technique that drives him to diagram a sentence about her T and A. To tie this back to ban books week, the basic assumption of people who do call on schools to ban books, to modify material, to try to keep anything quote adult unquote out of the classroom are starting with an assumption, and that assumption is that they have somehow controlled what teens are exposed to. I am talking about teenagers here, and that the school is betraying the careful control that they have established by speaking to young adults as if they were, well, young adults. Well, here's a question back. If you can't control your own household, why presume that any rule or list you can come up with will protect others? And if you can manage you know, what comes into your own home, then just do it. Here's the hypocrisy check. Does your home, and this is, you know, again, trying to speak directly to people who think that we should be much more cautious than I am about controlling the content of what is communicated in schools, that a book like uh, To Kill a Mockingbird is inappropriate because a character gets raped and because there's, there's the N-word appears in it. It's those kind of people I, wanna, I want to you know, give you a quick, kind of a quick hypocrisy check here. Does your home have televisions in it? There was a point in time in America when that would have been a singular question. Does your, does your, phone, does your home have a TV? Well, now it's probably more accurate to say, does your home have televisions, plural? Um, the televisions that you have. I mean, I'm going to ask the cable question, I suppose. Do you have HBO, Cinemax, Showtime, Stars, Encore? Uh, do you do pay-per-view in your video watching? But it's not just that. What about um, the television stations like WGN, WTBS? TNT, Oxygen, or the Lifetime Channel, or for that matter, ABC, NBC, CBS, PBS. Does your home have computers in it? And just how good is your net nanny? How good is your web filter in terms of making sure that nothing inappropriate comes into your house through the internet? Do your kids use Facebook? Do they have permission to speak freely with their friends on things like Facebook? And how would you know if you had restricted their permission to speak freely, how do you know whether that permission is actually being obeyed? Hell, do your kids read the Bible? Or are there chapters that you've completely blacked out, pages you've removed from books like Genesis or Revelations or many more in between? There's a lot of rape. There's a lot of murder. There's a lot of violence in the Bible. And a lot of people in the Bible not only had sex, but we honor the sex they had by putting them in large lists of ancestry. How much risk then, if we look at it from the other perspective, how much risk are we willing to take in order to awaken the minds of kids, especially the kids who are falling behind, who are bored to death, who are not engaged? What would we do to get them reading? What would we do to get them thinking? Or is getting them thinking perceived as one of the dangerous problems? It's enough if they memorize. It's enough if they can, you know, <clears throat> quote chapter and verse, perhaps. 
it's probably a, a far more risky thing if we take a chance and actually get them thinking. I'll ask a more specific question than that, though. How do we tune them in to what, to what matters most in grammar, punctuation, and the parts of speech? I'm going to focus on there because English was one of the things that really did energize me when I was in elementary school even, but definitely in junior high school. I can remember at one point, honors English, middle part of that junior high school era. So not the seventh grade where I did very well, not the ninth grade where I was back on track again, but the first part of my eighth grade year where I was, you know, I wasn't falling behind. I wasn't doing bad. If it came to a spelling test or or a punctuation test where I was going to give the answer, I was doing all right. But I wasn't necessarily doing that well when it came to uh, essay writing and other sort of assignments. And at one point, my teacher pulled me aside and said, listen, if, you've, if you're dealing with writer's block, which was my complaint, if you're dealing with writer's block, you know, you've got to be a little bit more free. Give yourself more freedom. Write about something that you care passionately about. And I said, well, what does that mean that I'm, I'm allowed to, instead of writing this as an essay, I'm allowed to turn it into some sort of a story and write something about sports? You want to read about a football game? She goes, I would love to read about a football game. I said, well, that's going to be a problem for me because, you know, I, I may not have liked the way the game ended. I don't necessarily want to tell that story. And she said, you know what? It's fiction, Greg. It's fiction. Make up your own ending to the game. It actually was a source of controversy because I made up my own ending to the game and some of the other guys in the, in the classroom were, were kind of peeved by that. I shouldn't be allowed to do that. shouldn't be allowed to change the way things happen. I shouldn't be allowed to make it more dramatic or in particular change who won. But you know, it was that kind of permission that I was given to say, you know what, we don't have to do this according to what the textbook says. You don't have to follow that example. Uh, creative writing should be exactly that. It should be creative Is learning the English language well enough to use it creatively and intelligently, really, about what Dick and Jane are doing with Spot to go all the way back to the first grade? What if the only way to flip the switch on in the mind of a particular teenage boy is to shift the focus on what Dick and Jane may do with themselves or each other? I don't think you can take the fart jokes out of the vocabulary of a 10-year-old boy. Trust me, I've been a 10-year-old boy for at least a couple of years in my life. You might, might be able to stop him from telling that joke, but you cannot stop him from thinking it. What chance do you think you have of stopping that same 15 or 16 year old boy from thinking about T and A and legs and what lies between N O N E none. You can't stop him from thinking it no matter what's in your high school curriculum. You can't stop him from thinking it if you are a parent who has decided to try to remove the world from an influencer on your child, and you pass my checklist perfectly. You live in a house where there is no radio, there is no TV, there is no computer, there is no internet, and there's only the books that you have carefully selected, including a very, very carefully edited version of the Bible. You still can't stop your kid from thinking it. You have no shot. We'll talk on some other show at a future time about perversion, but maybe this is a good place to put in a teaser, pun intended. You can't stop libido. Maybe, just maybe, you could prevent any focus toward the cheerleader's uniform or what the swim team wears, but hear this. If your dress code puts every high school girl in a nun's habit every day, you'll probably generate an unhealthy sexual response to nuns in the subconscious minds of many high school boys. You'll create, if not a perversion, Perhaps a mild fetish. It reminds me of a joke that Tina Fey told around the time that the uh, conflict in Afghanistan after 9-11 had shifted from removing the Taliban and had gone into nation building. It was probably on the Saturday Night Live weekend update 
where she hit the news of the day pretty straightforward and talked about how a woman, for the first time ever, was going to be in a key governmental position. If my memory serves me right, the woman in this case was being placed into the position of cabinet minister for the Department of Interior. Tina Fey's comment after reading the uh, the story, the headline in the lead paragraph of the story was, hey, who'd she have to show her ankles to to get that job? Now, I'm not trying to aggravate adherence to Islam, and I'm not taking a cheap shot at the Muslim faith. What I am saying here, though, is that the fact of the matter is the interest of, of a certain aged boy in the anatomy of women is so overwhelmingly powerful that if the only thing you let the boy see is eyes, he is going to have a passionate position on one girl's eyes versus another girl's eyes. He's going to have a point of view about it. And if you don't want someone that obsessed with eyes or ankles, then you might want to rethink your position about whether it even makes sense to cover someone head to toe. And in this case, a lot of the people who are in favor of banning books are doing what I would describe as the equivalent of slapping a burqa on the library. Now, I do that on purpose. Again, not so much to call out people who are uh, adherents to the Muslim faith, but to call out the fundamentalists on the Christian side of the fence who probably have a strong anti-Muslim fundamentalist point of view and don't necessarily recognize the common link that they share within their fundamentalism, that you cannot make the world safe for kids. All you can do as a parent and something you must do as a parent is to keep your kids safe from the world. So as a parent, you can exercise your discretion to say, hey, I've, I've seen the book list. I've noticed that To Kill a Mockingbird's on there, and, and I'm very sensitive to the N-word, and I've got a, a very knee-jerk kind of overreaction to rape, perhaps because of something that happened to me early in my lifetime. I'm going to tell my kid, that's not the book I want you to pick. You pick another one from this list. That's a very different thing than going to the school board or going to the principal and saying, this book should not be on the list for anyone else to read. Hey everybody, this is Rich from Movies You Should See. I'd just like to take a minute to remind you that you can now get Movies You Should See Year 4 available for download on musicalmousemat.com. It's only $12.99 at the moment. It's got 44 fantastic episodes, including the Tom Cruise special, which still sounds like something rude, the Bill Paxton special, the Listener Movie Awards, everything. It's all in there. You really need to go and get this box set. And don't forget, you can still get Year 1, 2, and 3 as well. So, what are you waiting for? Go and get all four years of movies you should see on musicalmousemat.com. I'm going to hit this topic in another time, and I apologize in advance if this is the first telling of a story that I end up repeating later on, because I'm going to try to avoid repeating myself too much as I go through it. I can't speak from experience as being an eyewitness to a book banning. But I have in my lifetime on a couple of occasions experienced or been in the, in the location of album bannings. One of them in particular that I caught wind of, I wasn't there as an eyewitness. So this is hearsay, disclaimer. But um, I was aware of an album burning where a lot of, again, fundamentalist Christians, I, is the only description I can offer for this, were gathering together to get rid of, in this case, get rid of by burning, their Amy Grant albums, because on one of her releases, and this isn't the Hearts in Motion album that came out in the, in the late 80s or early 90s, this was much earlier, in one of her albums, she had a secular song. What this means is for a career of a contemporary Christian singer who tended to have very straightforward contemporary Christian pop songs on every release, this time she had pop songs, but she also had a love song that could easily be love song from, from uh, wife to husband, love song between fiancé sort of a thing. And because of the presence of that song that wasn't exclusively about God, they were ready to burn not just that album, 
but every other album that they owned. They were ready to ditch her as an artist. She had somehow betrayed them. Now, in my mind, this is every bit as unacceptable as people who say that it is wrong to listen to any secular music whatsoever. In my mind, there is definitely a place for things in the contemporary Christian genre. And there are things in the contemporary Christian genre that I don't care for. But there's also room for other things as well. Because uh, if you're a Christian and you believe that God speaks to us through creation, there's a lot of creation that isn't in a test tube environment controlled completely by the church. There's a lot of God speaking in nature. And there's a lot of God speaking in very unexpected places and in very unexpected ways. But if you're so strict about the Christian music that you listen to, that you're not willing to be patient if Amy Grant puts out a song that she's singing to her husband or perhaps her future husband. I'm not so sure how far back this song goes. I think it might have been on her album, Lead Me On. But if you don't have patience for that, then heaven help you when it comes to, uh, to actually speaking a common language with the world. Gets us back to our kids in the, in the learning environment. Now, I don't think that it's a good idea for somebody to go up to the blackboard and using uh, very profane, inflammatory, distracting, disruptive language. But I am saying that I think that it is important to be creative and it is important to be tolerant. And especially in the case of a, of a reading list where you're not telling every kid in the classroom that they personally have to read a copy of a Judy Bloom book or something. But for a kid to come back from a summer reading um, the beginning of the school year and talk about that being a book they read during the summer uh, can't possibly be grounds for suspending somebody, can't possibly be grounds for threatening to fire a teacher. And this really comes down to the heart and soul of what Banned Book Week is all about. Again, we'll hit this topic from another angle at another time, but I can tell you in advance, the message will be, I don't think you can make this world clean and safe and pure enough for kids, or for anybody for that matter. That's a completely different request than saying, I'm going to keep my kids safe from the world. As parents, you have an obligation to use your own discretion. So, how serious am I am about the topic of, of energizing people by using a variety of different teaching styles, by bringing in different topics, by using uh, energy and creativity? Very, very serious. And for me, it goes all the way back to the very early 1980s. And that brings me into our different drummer. Certainly one of the best examples I've seen of an effort to make punctuation and grammar compelling, not merely interesting, but compelling, is the work of Karen Elizabeth Gordon. I use her books today as a reference. I read them often. Sometimes I read them just for entertainment, as a matter of fact. They're that good. Okay, here's something I've never done before. I've gotten up and wandered across the room to look at the reference shelf on my bookcase, because I want to drop a few names here, especially that anybody who's sort of a grammar nerd will recognize right away. I'm going to drop the names of Strunk and White, Kate Turabian, Walter K. Smart. These are the kind of grammar books that I've got on my shelf, along with both the AP and the UPI style book and a Webster's Dictionary. I've got what we might consider straightforward books on grammar and punctuation, but the best ones on my shelf belong to Karen Elizabeth Gordon. They are The Well-Tempered Sentence, a punctuation handbook for the innocent, the eager, and the doomed. And The Transitive Vampire, a handbook of grammar for the innocent, the eager, and the doomed. But she also has books with names like The Ravenous Muse, The Red Shoes and Other Tattered Tales, and The Disheveled Dictionary. She is a writer who believes in the creative piece of even things like teaching people how to spell, how to write, and how to punctuate. 
These books were given to me by my brother, and it's among the better gifts that he's ever given me. Later in the month of November, I'm going to get to what I think is the best gift, perhaps, my brother has ever given to me. But these books have stuck with me. Now, I've had conversations, believe it or not, I've had conversations about grammar textbooks and grammar handbooks with friends before. And a lot of times my friends will tell me that they have a much stronger affinity for uh, the Eat, Shoots, and Leaves book. The notion that if you punctuate improperly, you can change what a panda bear eats in terms of the food that he consumes into what sounds more like a panda bear performing a drive-by shooting at a vegetarian restaurant. Um, That book, very popular and very much in the same vein as the documents that I have from Karen Elizabeth Gordon. Part of the reason that I prefer uh, Gordon's books is that they came first. Yeah, and that's sort of a bias. But the other one is that they're the ones that I own. They're the ones that I carry. So I'm going to do some readings the rest of the way here, just examples from her book. I want to kind of bring us in a little bit. I want to reel us in because I've made some references to TNA. I've made some references to legs and what lies in between and perhaps scared the daylights out of some people. Is this guy really talking about, you know, having uh, uh, story problems in, in mathematics, where instead of talking about when the train leaves the station and how many miles per hour it's going, should we build story problems around the mathematical probability of getting someone pregnant using two different forms of contraception? Okay, I got to confess, I am sort of interested in those types of story problems. But I'm really not talking about turning this into an X rated affair. As you'll see as I just read through a few sentences and a few of the excerpts of these two books. That really, we're not even talking about R-rated material. We're talking about PG-13. But you know what? I challenge those people who are interested in banning books, especially those who would target a book like Fahrenheit 451. Are you drawing a line between PG-13 and R and saying the R-rated material doesn't belong in your kid's middle school or your kid's high school? Or are you really drawing a line between PG and PG-13? The adult content in some of the books that I've read on the banned books list is negligible at best. And at the end of the day, we're not really talking about magic words here, are we? We're talking about the management of ideas, not the management of terminology. To quote Kramer, um, not the Seinfeld character, but the person who's influential member of the Shimmy Disc record label, a record label that is responsible for giving us bands that I frankly really enjoy, like King Missile and Bongwater, on the back of the early releases by Shimmy Disc, where the uh, content of the release kind of called for a warning label, This Canadian record label, instead of putting parental advisory in big block letters like America would later do, simply put a very quick, pithy quote. There are no bad words, only bad people. One of the good people out there in my mind, and a couple of relatively small, 100-page, give-or-take textbooks that everyone should have on their shelf as a reference for the right way to manage commas and parentheses and everything else in between is our different drummer this week, Karen Elizabeth Gordon. Okay, I want to stay well within the guidelines of fair use, and believe me when I tell you that Gordon's books have a lot of great instruction and advice in them. I'm generally going to stay away from the instruction and advice because what I want to do is talk about her examples and ask you to consider whether these examples are not the kind of examples that make you want to read more. In other words, instead of um, Dick and Jane throwing a ball to spot, there's something more interesting going on in the kind of instances that are provided by Gordon. I want to begin in her grammar book uh, and kind of work grammar through first, I suppose, and then go back to the earlier uh, punctuation book. But I want to start with an example of words and what kind of words they are. And She's giving examples of how similar words, especially in the English language, can be verbs or adjectives or nouns. And we use these words uh, in all these different forms in the parts of speech. 
But again, I'm just going to read her sentences. I fancy dames with broad shoulders. Her fancy dress showed them off to great advantage. I took a fancy to her. The vampire began to powder his nose. The powder made him sneeze all over the mirror, which he could not see himself in anyway. The bulge in his jacket made him look pregnant. He used to bulge all over. His pants are bulging too. She pants at the sight of him. The throbbing made her reel and fall. He was throbbing with pleasure at the sight. This is an example of the kind of things that would probably send somebody whose inclinations are toward book banning into a frenzy, into a tizzy. And yet when I see this sort of an example, when I see every one of the parts of speech, or at least many of the parts of speech used in these comparative ways, it makes me want to read further. And that's exactly what happened something like 20 years ago. Here are a few other examples, and at this point, I think I'm just going to rattle off a few sentences just to give you a sense of the kind of sentence structure that she's putting together. Each one of them designed to serve the purpose of showing the right situation for using a comma versus a semicolon versus a period, uh, whether you've got a run-on sentence or a properly constructed sentence, what an appositive is, and how to set a positive apart properly with punctuation, things of that nature. His huge, calm, intelligent hands swerved through the preliminaries and wrestled with the, her confusion of lace. They toyed with the idea amorously. Flabbergasted, she acquiesced to his invitation. Astonished, he pumped her arm. Exhausted, she begged him to stop. Overwhelmed, she slouched to the ground. Puzzled, he tickled her ear. Undaunted, she continued to swoon. Embarrassed, he took to his heels. Unstrung, she recovered her cool. The orchestra played mercilessly. We waltzed listlessly. That's actually a double pun, making reference to the composer Liszt at the same time. We all ended somewhere with our various uncertain lives flapping about us in tatters and our pockets full of foreign coins. She tickled his fancy, which was in need of a good laugh. She conjured up visions of unearthly buffoons to while away her dread. Here's one for our English fans. She was kicked by the soft shoe of destiny, and she landed in Wales. And in a way that may not make sense, here's one for a Canadian fan or two. That beard, which sits so awkwardly upon his face, looks like a toupee for the chin. Or perhaps a merkin. She darkened his door. He lit her fire. They both burned. She could hardly put her best foot forward as long as it was in her mouth. She could scarcely mope in her room in that tawdry get-up and get her comeuppance, too. To be ultimately satisfying, a tryst should coincide with several other transgressions as well. Beckon the transitive vampire to your bedside and submit to his kisses thirstily. Now, if it's hard for you to imagine where, in each one of these examples, the lesson on the parts of speech or grammar was being offered, isn't that a good thing? Isn't that the way forward? To say, hey... We're going to teach these things, but not by hitting you over the head with them. We're going to teach these things by using examples that aren't themselves a distraction in the form of absolute boredom. Is there risk that the examples will be interesting to themselves and so interesting that they become a distraction? Hey, isn't it about time we decided we were willing to take that risk? We're trying to turn on the minds of kids, and not just to get them to learn the material that that particular class is trying to teach, but to get them to think. Thinking doesn't start and stop within the 50-minute period of the class itself. Thinking should start there if it hasn't started before, 
but it needs to carry on and it needs to carry forward. I will quote just a couple of examples from her book where she offers some introductory material to see that even in the lesson plan itself of this particular uh, handbook of grammar, she's got a sense of humor, she's got a wit, and she's quick with it and sharp with it. On the topic of sentence fragments, here's what Karen Elizabeth Gordon has to say on the matter. The sentence fragment, an incomplete sentence punctuated as a sentence, is a grammatical blunder of the most atrocious order. Trying to pass off a group of words like a phrase or a subordinate clause as a complete sentence is a scurrilous mechanical misdeed. A fragment should be joined to a main clause or rewritten to become a complete sentence by itself. Even if it, even if it contains a subject and predicate, a statement preceded by a subordinate conjunction will still not make it as a sentence. Watch your step, buddy. She gives an example of a fragment. Sometimes bras and panties would cry out for her to touch them, period, navigating her way through the boutique period. That's incorrect. She then shows the correct example by saying, sometimes bras and panties would cry out for her to touch them as she navigated her way through the boutique, setting it right. Now, the other thing I didn't mention in the different drummer segment about Carolyn, Karen Elizabeth Gordon is that she isn't just an author. She's an illustrator and more, I would say, a book designer that in each one of her uh, chapters, she doesn't just include the uh, right and wrong examples of how to do it and some very pithy guidance. She also includes illustrations, and the illustrations bring the examples even more to life. Uh, this one that I just cited with the bras and panties crying out to her, the character that she's referring to is either a nun. I'm sure that her intention was for her to be a nun, but a nun in a getup that is so cons constraining that it might as well be a burqa. So we could be looking either at a Catholic nun or at, or at a Muslim woman in a very conservative uh, country and uh, talking about the uh, undergarments and the possibilities of, of being sexy and sexual, crying out to her, it just adds another level. The illustrations back up the uh, humor that she's trying to bring into the examples. Here's just a couple more in the grammar book before I move over to punctuation. Uh, believe me, I'm not spoiling these books in any way. It's, it's, there are so many examples here that I've been just very picky and choosy, truth be known. Here's what she has to say in her instructions about verbs. The verb is the heartthrob of the sentence. Without the verb, a group of words can never hope to be anything more than a fragment, a hopelessly incomplete sentence, a eunuch, or a dummy of grammatical expression. No verb can parade around without a subject, which can be stated openly or simply implied. Even if a sentence is only one word long, as in the command such as scram, the sentence is understood to be you. Here the verb holds the whole thing together, carrying the burden of the meaning all the way through to the exclamation point and into the reader's head. A verb's purpose in life is to assert, avow, state, imply, insinuate, affirm something about its subject. And just a quick sentence from her section on pronouns, a section that I would... Uh, you know, challenge anybody who thinks that they're really cocky, they learned English in English class, maybe even had a couple college courses, you got this thing down. How well do you remember your grammar? So well that you couldn't possibly pick up a grammar textbook like this and refresh your memory? Challenge yourself with this sentence. There are eight kinds of pronouns. Personal, interrogative, indefinite, relative, demonstrative, reciprocal, reflexive, and intensive. And we shall admire them all. I believe her when she says that. Okay, a quick confession to make as I shift away from the parts of speech and into the punctuation section. When it comes to uh, English and English class and English majors and stuff like that, you know, on the scale of things, I'm, I'm much more energized by punctuation than I am by parts of speech. So when I delve into her well-tempered sentence, um, I, I'm really in my wheelhouse here. Again, I'll try to focus on just examples, though. 
I begged to differ with him, but he refused to see me that way. When it became apparent that they were just pulling our legs, we started kicking. As far as I'm concerned, all phone calls are obscene. That quote is actually famous enough that I think if you go online and Google Karen Elizabeth Gordon, you might find a quote page with that example online. There's not a lot of good biographical material, short of the fact that she lives both in California and Paris, finding her inspiration perhaps in Paris, but really feeling more at home uh, in America trying to write books in English for an English reading audience. Mitzi, in a manner that surprised everyone present, broke into a hefty aria and then proceeded to swallow a sword. Again, I want to know more about Mitzi. Raymond, who usually wears overalls, showed up in a green kimono. That's a comma setting off a non-restrictive phrase or a non-restrictive clause. If your intentions are really good, I'll never understand them. To get the rest of it off your chest, you'd have to remove your shirt. Those spurs are, I must say, a provocative addition to your wardrobe. The less she knew about the other woman the more elaborate and tormenting her fantasies became. As he usually did when entering a strange room or agreement, he thought fondly and desperately of his motto, Be cool, which never did him any good. Get out and take your mucus with you was hardly the sympathetic greeting the flu victim expected from his, health, his otherwise healthy friends. G.K. Chesterton says that coincidences are spiritual puns. I agree with him. Unless you think that the work that Gordon has done is lightweight, because the examples that I'm using are humorous and pithy, she does have a great deal of complexity here. I'm going to quote an example that is of a semicolon going outside quotation marks or parentheses. When quoted matter ends with a semicolon, the semicolon is dropped. So this is a fairly, uh, a fairly specific example of a grammatical situation that you might need to navigate yourself through. And I've got two of them here. One of them. This is only one of the signs of her coming dementia. Many more were yet to manifest themselves. Her delusions became progressively more literary and bizarre. Or, not only were we naked, crazed, and starving, and far from our warm little homes, we were without any good books as well. More than just a book, it's a major piece of torture. In a section on quotation marks and dialogue, here's an exchange I really enjoyed. Are you getting married? Eh, it's a toss-up between probably and no. He's probably out there, in the waiting room, sitting in his own lap. We took a torturous route, through small talk, double entendres, a few drinks, and some polite evasions, to arrive at a state of intimacy where we pleasantly admired our own bodies. And, perhaps, well past the time that I wore this shtick thin, the last quote I'll offer you from the books of Karen Elizabeth Gordon. At that time, she, Tarantula Gadfly, was merely stage-struck and madly in love with herself. I can tell you as somebody who really enjoys punctuation and grammar that I'm almost tempted to say that I'm madly in love with these books. I've got some of the greats on the shelf over there. I've got Strunk and White. I've got Smart. I've got Turabian. Which grammar book do you think I pick up when I have a question about how to handle a particular you know, noun-verb agreement or what to do with a question of a comma-slash-dash-slash-semicolon situation? I go to Karen Elizabeth Gordon, and I go to Karen Elizabeth Gordon because she makes it fun. So the challenge back to us here in the aftermath of Banned Books Week 2010 is this. Were any of the sentences there so upsetting that we would, you know, pick at the school board, fire a teacher, ban that, ban that particular teaching technique from a classroom? And if so, shame on us. 
Shame on us because there are times as a nation when we are willing to send children out into the world who are incapable of thinking at all because we don't want them to think anything that disagrees with our puritanical notion of what the world really ought to be like. Alrighty then. <laughs> Anomaly. Something that deviates from what is standard, normal, or expected. An oddity. Peculiarity. Irregularity. Inconsistency. Incongruity. A rarity. I'm Jen. And I'm Angela. And we're the socially functional co-hosts of Anomaly, the podcast with a unique perspective, a female perspective on all things geek. Star Trek. Star Wars. Lord of the Rings. Buffy. Firefly. Gaming. Books. Costuming. And general geek topics. The sometimes monthly, but always entertaining Anomaly Podcast. Anomalypodcast.com. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this inappropriate conversation yourself, perhaps with a different opinion, or with some other fantastic examples of wonderful sentences that bring things that are as dry as mathematical story problems or uh, diagramming grammatical sentences to life, I can be reached at inappropriateconversations.podbean.com. No W is there, just the HTTP. Comments are enabled at the website, where I usually include a, a paragraph or some quick show notes. I also can be reached via email at ic underscore greg at hotmail.com. I'm just a couple of weeks away from putting out a program where I answer all the feedback that I've received so far from the first 30, 31, 32 shows. So if you have some feedback that you've been intending to provide, now's the time. There's a pretty good chance that I'll quote you in the next program or in the program that I'm going to release somewhere around October 23rd, as opposed to quoting somebody uh, like Karen Elizabeth Gordon. Thanks for listening.